You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And this morning, we're going to be reading together from chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. You'll find this on page 928 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, page 928 of the Pew Bible. Hear the word of God. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, The Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. The outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost was a watershed event in redemptive history. Forty days earlier, as you may know, Jesus Christ rose from the grave in great triumph. He had conquered his enemies, and at the same time, he had redeemed his people. And then during that 40-day period, he appeared to and conversed with his apostles. We're not told exactly what he was saying to them, but they were things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He also commissioned them to make disciples of all nations. And that was an enormous task, to be sure. But he promised to be with us to accomplish that task to the end. Then before their eyes, he visibly went up into the highest heavens, Jesus. And that's where he is even now praying for us and preparing a place for us. The ascension of Christ signaled our king's glorious triumph over the powers of darkness. Then he poured out the promised Holy Spirit lavishly upon the church. We call it Pentecost. And it is, I believe, as important as the cross and the resurrection themselves. In the person of his spirit, the risen Christ has come to empower his church. The 120 disciples who gathered in Jerusalem for prayer were anointed. You remember the story. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the outcome of that? There were added that day to the church about 3,000 souls. The same disciples who had previously fled were now bold as lions. And they were invested with supernatural and eschatological power. They went out healing the sick. They raised the dead. They cleansed the lepers. They cast out demons and they preached the gospel with power. How does that happen apart from the Holy Spirit? It was an amazing turnaround for a group of very ordinary individuals, just like you and me. Like peals of thunder, the outpouring of the Spirit kept reverberating around the ancient world. As the apostles would move from place to place, the blessing of the Spirit would expand. And the gospel was spreading with power as the Spirit fell upon more and more people. God was fulfilling his ancient promise to give his spirit to those who worship him. Well, this is what happened when Paul arrived in Ephesus and he met 12 of John's disciples. They had been baptized by John, whose baptism, you'll remember, was one of repentance. He turned from sin and turned toward Christ. He was Christ's forerunner who prepared the way for the messianic king. And John called all the Jews to turn from their sins and to prepare for the coming Christ. And it was a very important work predicted, predicted long ago by the Jewish prophet. As we read earlier, Malachi said, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You see what he was saying? John would be a prophet of the same spirit as Elijah who would prepare the way for Christ. He'd be zealous for God. He'd be bold in reproving sin. He'd call all to repentance. He was not a soft and delicate man. He was a bold and wilderness prophet. He was clothed with camel's hair, he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He was a precursor of the Messiah, and he gave fair warning of the wrath to come. He said, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And his message was this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's how he prepared the nation for the appearance of Christ. This was before Jesus began his public ministry, before he died on the cross and rose from the tomb. So John's ministry, we have to understand, was provisional. It was preparatory. His work was anticipatory, if you will. By contrast, the ministry of Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises. It wasn't provisional. It was a fulfillment. He became our sin bearer so we could receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He bore the wrath and condemnation of God that our sins deserve. And that's why the apostle concludes, in him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses.
What an amazing thing. When in Ephesus, Paul met these 12 disciples, they knew the baptism of John, which tells me that they were still looking for the one whom John said would come after him. As of yet, they did not know about the cross. They had not received the Spirit. And when asked, they admitted that they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. They missed the joyful assurance of the indwelling spirit. They weren't yet united to Christ. These men were in that early transition period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so the apostle, as was his custom, went to work immediately explaining the gospel to them more fully. And as he discipled them, and when he baptized them, the spirit came upon them. And this was the continuation of the great outpouring on the church at Pentecost. Everything said about the Spirit's work traces back to that pivotal event, Pentecost. The work of Christ secured and communicated the gift of the Spirit to the church. And the outpouring of this Holy Spirit is the great covenant promise of the Father. He was given to Jesus by the Father as a reward for his finished work. And then our Lord pours him out to empower us for the task ahead. So this text, I'm saying, is one of those early peals of Pentecost or one of the reverberations in the ancient world. We might even say that the initial outpouring started this spiritual or eschatological tsunami of power. It began in Jerusalem, it spread to Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. It accompanied the apostolic witness as Christ moved out from the center. And the Spirit gave audible and visible signs of his power as they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And it was when Paul laid his hands upon these men that the Spirit came, which provides a clear link between Christ and his apostles. After all, he is called the Spirit of Christ. Jesus is present in his Spirit. So as we look at this text, I think that we should see it in light of the history of redemption. It's not a pattern for personal experience, as if it taught some sort of second blessing. Rather, it illustrates how the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost affects the church, even today. And from that day that Peter preached, and 3,000 souls were added, the Spirit empowered the bride of Christ. Because you see, and this is important to understand, the administration of the covenant of grace was different under the Old Testament than under the New Testament. Just like we have different administrations in our government, right? We have four years of this president, four years of this president. They're different administrations, same government, different administrations, same covenant, different administrations. In every age of history, in some way or other, God has revealed Christ. For all the saints, he's always been the object of faith and the source of blessedness. The Old Testament saints looked forward to Christ. The New Testament saints reflect back on Christ 
whether you're Old Testament or New Testament, if you trust in him, your sins are forgiven. And that's because the covenant of grace is the same throughout history. Whether Old Testament or New Testament, believers are saved from the coming wrath by the same covenant. Before, under the Old Testament, the covenant of grace was administered in a variety of ways. Promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover. The whole administration was anticipatory. Israel was waiting for their Messiah. But now, under the New Testament, the covenant is administered differently because he's come. Everything to which the Old Testament pointed was fulfilled in Jesus. And the administration, let's face it, is far simpler, more direct, and less cumbersome than the Old Testament. Can you imagine wrestling those goats up to the priest? How difficult would that have been? The covenant of grace now is administered by the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. That's it. They're easily adaptable to any culture in which they're planted. And I think in this we see an illustration of the infinite wisdom of God. Under the Old Testament, as you know, there was a lot that appealed to the physical senses. You could see the priest and the sacrifice. You could hear the bleeding of the sheep. You could smell the blood in Jerusalem. You could smell the incense and view the glory of the temple. All the outward display was suited to the spiritual immaturity of the people. It was as if God was teaching them with this great big picture book. Remember what Christ said to the woman at the well? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So now the gospel terms are offered in ways that transcend culture. It's spread easily with fewer, simpler ordinances and that are more spiritual because we're to make disciples of all nations. So what I'd like to do in the time that remains is show how, at least in four ways, our text illustrates this transition. First, it shows that under the new covenant, grace and salvation are held forth in more fullness. All 12 of those men were filled with the Holy Spirit and showed signs of his indwelling. This covenant administration, therefore, under which we live, far excels that of the Old Testament. It's exceedingly full. It's far more full than anything the Old Testament saints ever experienced. Consider what Paul says when he compares the two administrations. Pastor Pilon read it. If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, there was glory in it, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? 
He describes that administration under Moses as a ministry of death. It was a ministry of death, partly because of the manner it was given. Remember at Sinai, established with thunders and lightnings and thick cloud and trumpet blast? So terrifying was it that all the people in the camp trembled, even Moses. It was also the ministry of death because of the threats and the curses that accompanied it. Nobody could keep it. It showed the utter depravity of the human race. And even in the best circumstances, you and I and no man can keep the covenant. And so because nobody could keep it, Paul's description of it is less favorable. He says, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. The new covenant is different because it's far more full. It's a ministry of righteousness. It's not framed in negative terms. Just think of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. Positive. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is far more profuse, far more plentiful than anything that went before. And oh, how full is this administration. What a privilege it is for you and I to live in this age. It's a special privilege that belongs to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't describe you, then you have an opportunity right here, right now. Jesus says, and I quote, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The blessing of eternal life is given to everyone who believes without exception. Everybody who simply accepts those terms of salvation will live and not be condemned. Just like those stung Hebrews who had to only look at the bronze serpent, we simply look at Christ. It has nothing to do with how much you do or pray or read or meditate. It has nothing to do with that. You simply look to Jesus, trusting in him, and you'll be saved. That's full. But then secondly, it shows under the new covenant how grace and salvation are held forth with more clarity. The 12 men followed John, repented of sin, looked for Jesus, but needed more. They needed New Testament clarity. Paul described the Old Testament administration as coming with glory because no other nation on earth could lay claim to the privileges of Israel. They had the oracles of God and the adoption, the covenants, and so forth. In other words, they had all the privileges. Even Jesus was a Jew. But though the saints under Moses were saved by Jesus, they couldn't see him clearly. All they could do was view him from afar through the various Old Testament ordinances. It was an administration of shadows, whereas the New Testament is an administration of substance. And they had to discern this person and work of Messiah through prophets and priests and sacrifices. Not so now. Jesus is clearly set forth in the Gospels. He fulfilled the prophecies. He realized the promises. He accomplished our salvation so that you and I have clarity. Clarity. 
We're told by John, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So let's not miss how much more clear is the gospel of Christ in our day. The Old Testament gave them an expectation of blessing. The New Testament administration puts us in possession of the blessings. You and I can read and hear of his vicarious death. We know that he paid the ransom for our souls. We know about his resurrection on the third day and his ascension into heaven and his ongoing intercession. We know about that. What a glorious privilege that is. What a blessing it is to live when we live. It's more clear. But thirdly, it shows how grace and salvation are held forth with more efficacy. It's not just full. It's not just clear. It's more effective. Apparently, all 12 were spirit-filled. They were drenched with the Spirit. Throughout the Old Testament, the number of true believers was relatively small, at least compared to the great multitude of Christians today. Through their ignorance or their blindness or their hardness of heart, they were not as favorably disposed. They were not able to easily discern the spiritual significance of these ceremonies, this bleeding of the sheep. And as a result, when Jesus arrived, there was but a small remnant of faithful believers. There was Zechariah and Elizabeth. There were Joseph and Mary. Simeon and Anna. It was a small remnant who rejoiced to see the day of Christ, to embrace the promises. But after the outpouring at Pentecost, the fruit of gospel preaching exploded. Several times in Acts, Luke tells us how effective it was. Acts 13, from Pisidian Antioch, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Acts 19, in and around Ephesus, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Many were coming to Christ. All sorts of people were being converted. Oftentimes, they were the most unlikely converts, but the spirit and the word prevailed. And people who once opposed the gospel were now being captivated by it. Christians were being conformed to Christ's image. Christians were being subdued to his will gladly. And the power of the gospel was being displayed and is still being displayed. Because I would say that your presence here today is proof that the gospel is still bearing fruit. But then fourth and finally, it shows as well that grace and salvation are held forth to all nations. It's not just full. It's not just clear. It's not just effective, but it's universal. The prophets predicted that Christ would be a light to the Gentiles, that he would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And since the inauguration of the Messianic age and the death and resurrection of Christ, this is happening. Believers from all nations, people of every group, have a place in the church. And these ordinances, very simple, seemingly very austere, are universal. They're simpler, fewer, more adaptable. They transcend culture. We priest preach Christ in the native language. We faithfully administer the sacraments, and that's it. 
Wherever these are administered, the word and the sacrament, there the church is established. And this can happen anywhere in the world. Ernie Miller used to travel all over the world, and he'd tell me he'd go to these churches, and he'd worship God. Preaching of the word, administration of the sacraments. That can happen in any country around the globe. The Mosaic administration was limited to one nation. But now, under the new covenant, the gospel is preached everywhere. So regardless of national or ethnic boundaries, we preach to the human race. We make disciples of all nations. Well, let me conclude by saying this. The same spirit who was poured out upon the church is dwelling in the believer. This is the unspeakable privilege and comfort of those who are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit dwells in us as in his temple, leading and guiding and sanctifying us, and he is present in our hearts as the agent of Christ and the worker of grace. Isn't that a privilege? True, as God, the Spirit is present in all creatures, preserving and governing. But as the Spirit of Christ, he is especially present in the believers with regenerating grace. This is why the Christian is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. He enlightens our minds. He renews our hearts. He transforms us from sinners into saints. And the day will come when he who raised Jesus from the dead will raise our mortal bodies from the grave. And as a spirit-filled Christian, you are an adopted child taken into the family of God. That's what the Bible says. Makes no difference how you feel. You're a child of God. If you trust in Christ, his spirit dwells in you. Paul says, all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. He leads us in godliness. He replaces fear with freedom. He prompts us to pray to God as our Father, and he seals us to the day of redemption. And we belong to the family of God. If you have any interest whatsoever in the word of God, that's evidence of his indwelling presence. Just a spark. The assurance he gives to you and I is unlike anything else we can enjoy in this world. No matter what your circumstances, you can have joy. He applies to us the benefits of Christ, and we entertain the hope of glory. And that's our inheritance, and it is certain Jesus obtained it, and the Spirit applies it. And we say thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This great promise that you've made that Christ has obtained for us. We're thankful that he dwells within our hearts, that he enables us to attend worship and to find interesting things in your word and to seek your face. And we pray that the Spirit will have his way with us conforming us to your image and subduing us to your will and filling us with inexpressible joy. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.
for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.